I think by episode 300, we pretty much disclosed all the compromise that existed on us. But uh, uh, so we're, we're unblackmailable for anything ever said on the uh, podcast. But yeah, you're right. Uh, oh, but Stuart, that story about the goat and you from, from a couple <laughs> years ago. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, um, she denies it. I, that's all I can say. <laughs> Welcome to episode 300 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Boy, you, I thought we'd never get there, and I bet you did too. Uh, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views expressed here are not those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our families, or even our pets. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing today Jonathan Reiber, from, who's a senior advisor in technology for global security uh, uh, and a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. Uh, and then joining me for the news roundup uh, are two of our favorites, Paul Rosenzweig, uh, founder of Red Branch Consulting and senior fellow at R Street, uh, and formerly Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy at DHS, and Nick Weaver, uh, senior researcher and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, uh, host and chief provocateur for today's program. Uh, uh, well, uh, even though this story is was reported 25 years ago, more or less in the same terms. It's irresistible to start out the um, Cyber Law Podcast uh, with a discussion of the uh, uh, article in the Post about uh, uh, the uh, CIA's ownership or alleged ownership of crypto AG. Paul, uh, uh, tell us what the story is about. Well, uh, you're right, Stuart, that this was mostly reported at least 20 years ago, but it was reported in terms of CIA's influence over Crypto AG, which is a Swiss company that manufactures the hardware for cryptography. What's new now is that the Post got their hands on portions of the internal history of the CIA. So first off, we've sort of verified the earlier reporting as completely accurate. And second, we've learned that not just did the CIA influence crypto AG so that it built machines that had backdoors in them, and thus when they sold the machines, they were uh, the CIA was able to read everybody's mail. But in fact, the US government owned crypto AG in a joint venture with the German uh, BND. And so we made money on the deal. Uh, yeah, which is the, which is one of the most fascinating intelligence coups that we've ever you know been able to really peer into and under the hood of. You know, the CIA and German intelligence sold cryptographic machines to the rest of the world, mostly not not to Russia and China, who were skeptical of a Swiss si- system anyway, but to almost everybody else. And we were able to read you know something on the order of eighty percent of uh, cryptographic traffic uh, for a lot of these countries. It looks like in real time, uh, Jimmy Carter was getting intel on Iranian uh, thoughts about the hostages, for example. This is, it's reporting uh, of one of the, what'll go down as one of the truly wonderful success stories of uh, U.S. intelligence activity for the Cold War era. 
Yeah, I, you know, it's not often that uh, uh, classified information uh, uh, is disclosed that is old enough that I might actually have seen it when I was uh, in government, at least at uh, the National Security Agency. But uh, this is definitely old enough, and I should say I can't comment on the truth or falsity of any of this. Uh, uh, but the thing that I had never heard in any context uh, whatsoever was a suggestion <laughs> we sold some of this stuff to the Pope. <laughs> you know, uh, that takes a, a level of um, uh, chutzpah that's uh, pretty remarkable. Yeah, um, but also there's a couple of interesting things in the story, too. Uh, first is the Germans really are reluctant to spy on their friends. It's strange. I think they're the only one on the planet. Um, somebody needs to send a plaster to Nakasone's office to deal with the uh, fist that he put through the wall because, let's face it, the CIA is grabbing all the credit for what was really mostly NSA work to actually make the sabotage work and collect the intercepts and everything else. And then they find out that the CIA probably kept the money and never told the NSA. <laughs> Dude, it's no fair. <laughs> It just goes to show that uh, being the uh, the interface is the crucial matter if you want to keep the money. Uh, 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 <laughs> the other thing that it showed is a real big F up, though. So there was a lot of suspicion. And in the early 90s, a crypto AG salesman was effectively kidnapped by Iran, selling to Iran, basically thrown in jail, give us a million dollars bail or he never gets out. And the Germans ended up paying for it rather than the CIA because we don't believe in paying ransoms. And then Crypto AG had the gall to try to charge the salesman for the cost of his bail that was paid for not by Crypto AG, the company, but by the uh, German security services. And that was when this guy started looking and uh, blew the whistle on the whole thing. Well, if you ever wondered how the Swiss got to be rich, that would tell you something. It's a remarkable story. Uh, it, uh, and there's a lot in there. There was a, a follow-up story today in the Post, I think, or maybe yesterday, suggesting that there was a problem um, in Argentina where they also thought that that there was something wrong with their crypto because it was uh, breakable. Uh, um, and uh, the uh, story says that the U.S. government went down there, fixed it to their satisfaction, uh, uh, and was requested, shades of the Germans, uh, not to tell all the other parties that uh, had, had gotten similar machines uh, through the Argentines that there was a problem because the Argentines were reading their mail too. Uh, uh, this is this is not a uh, a business for gentlemen. You know, it really does raise a fascinating question. I mean, this is um, in a lot of ways this posed some of the the traditional Coventry problems where you know the broken code gives you insight, but it makes it hard to act on it without disclosing the the breakthrough. You know, I was thinking a lot about you know what is. Carter's reported reticence about using this system in the in the Iranian crisis because he didn't want to blow up a bigger thing. And I'm thinking about all the poor schmucks who were stuck in the in the in the embassy for that long who who might have gotten out earlier, you know. But who knows? It's a it's a great conundrum, great ethical conundrum, and a wonderful story. It was a, it was a good story. Um, okay, um, 
there's another PLA indictment from the Justice Department, this time over the Equifax breach, which everybody had speculated was uh, uh, the Chinese government. And uh, this certainly suggests puts the U.S. government strongly behind that theory. Uh, uh, Nick, is there any uh, anything to be learned beyond the fact that we certainly haven't given up on uh, the uh, um, uh, name and shame strategy? Not only are we not giving up on the name and shame strategy, but we're willing to do certain tweaks of our adversaries in the process. So um, one of the photos of the four um, looks to be taken from the person's webcam. <laughs> yeah, there is a message there, isn't there? <laughs> oh, yeah. So if you're thinking about what they're doing with this, like there, is, there was a story uh, uh, that just came out in the last day or so about uh, how uh, uh, China is using data to follow up on Uyghur dissidents, which seems to be anybody who's a Uyghur, um, a, and a massive database with hundreds or dozens of little data points designed to determine just how much of a threat they might be, how often they pray, and whether they have a beard and uh, uh, which mosques they go to, uh, whether they uh, have been ever been seen with a beer. Um, and you can see uh, if they if they're willing to do that with their own folks, that's a tool that they like. Uh, and it seems to me it's highly likely that they're putting together little spreadsheets on everybody of interest in other countries that try to emulate that kind of granularity with respect to the extent to which uh, um, uh, the rest of us are threats to Chinese state power. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right, Stuart. And you've put together two really important that are otherwise disparate pieces of, of news for the week. Uh, the PLA indictment says that they stole Equifax's data, and we know that they stole the OMB uh, uh, personnel data, including you know yours and my security clearance information. And the Uyghur story, which was which is really quite remarkable, shows the extent to which they are, the Chinese are willing to uh, essentially use brute force, if you will, to. Uh, systematize all of the collected data. I assume some of it is is automated, but a lot of it looks like the coding is done at a, at a very granular level by individuals who are assessing other people. And so I have to imagine that somewhere out there is a is a spreadsheet that has your name on it, my name on it, Nick's name on it, um, in which they've assessed our history and A, whether we are likely to be subject to influ positive influence by, you know, by a, a, a nice approach or possibly uh, whether or not we have anything in our backgrounds that we don't want disclosed that would be uh, the, a suitable subject for a pressure point on us. It's, uh, it's really the, the Chinese have, have, have made a strong effort to make the big brother worst case scenario come true for the world. Well, I think by episode 300, we pretty much disclosed all the compromise that existed on us. But uh, uh, so we're, we're unblackmailable for anything ever said on the uh, podcast. But yeah, you're right. Uh, oh, but Stuart, that story about the goat and you from, from a couple <laughs> years ago. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, um, she denies it. Uh, that's all I can say. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, Nick, uh, I, 
there was an indictment of a guy who ran a Bitcoin mixing service. Uh, I, and and I, I guess the question is, what the hell is a Bitcoin mixing service and why can you get arrested for running one? So Bitcoin has a slight problem. It is actually trivial to trace. So people have come up with literally Bitcoin money laundering as a service. You send in X Bitcoin and sometime later you get X minus a fee back from a different pile of Bitcoins that's supposedly unlinked. Truth be told, this is a pretty useless service as it's very easy to identify the mixing services themselves. And this guy happened to be running one up until actually over two years ago. He shut it down in 2017. And well, money laundering as a service is still money laundering and that's still illegal. And I suspect the feds had him in their sights for a long time and just finally got tired of waiting around and decided to prosecute him. So the, the, the problem for people who uh, get ransomware payments is that when they, uh, when they get it, everybody knows where it went. And when they try to spend it, uh, then uh, everybody says, well, this is, this is dirty money. Uh, but if you send it to a Bitcoin mixer, the, the theory is that they can uh, – kind of engage in hundreds or thousands of small transactions, spreading the money around and then bringing it back uh, from someplace else and giving you different money, although it will still be a payment probably from the mixing service. And uh, uh, the, how is it that people are tracing this? They're tracing these little microtransactions and uh, drawing inferences from the fact that they come from Bitcoin mixers? Yeah, so what you can do is you can participate as a customer on the Bitcoin mixer. And now you can use that to identify the pools of coins that the mixer is using. And now you know all the money from the mixing service that is tainted by the mixing service itself. Ah, so so you basically just say this stuff was in the service. If it came out of the service, we're going to assume that some of it is tainted and we take it all because that's the way the uh, 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 the forfeiture laws work. Uh, uh, plus, they get to keep all the other uh, stuff because it's also tainted. Uh, um, so this ought to be a pretty profitable enterprise on the part of the U.S. government, too. Except that they've, uh, whenever they've seized Bitcoin, they've done very poor jobs of timing the market on selling it. So they sold the Silk Road stash well before the peak, and they're right now selling a large stash that was mostly collected before the peak well after. Yep. Well, maybe the, maybe the lack of a peak has something to do with the fact that uh, the U.S. government is in the market as a seller. All right. Uh, Paul, Amazon has sued and had some surprising success uh, in their effort to claim that the enormous billion-dollar-a-year, 10-year uh, contract to provide cloud computing services uh, uh, to DOD was awarded to Microsoft improperly because of outside influence designed to hurt Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Uh, um, the judge actually said, yeah, you can't make this award yet because I think there's something to this case. It's remarkable. I mean, as you said, this is the largest IT development contract ever let in the history of the United States. Its valuation would be on the order of $10 billion. Uh, everybody uh, thought that Amazon had the inside track, A, because they run the... Uh, 
uh, intelligence community's equivalent cloud system and and by all reports have done a reasonably good job of it. No big outages, no problems like that. B, they are the cloud leaders um, in, you know, in technology uh, generically uh, across the commercial space as well. And C, because they seem to have um, uh, the ear of the, of the defense officials who were, who were going to make the award. They had uh, a longer history with them and, and, and some, so the, so the award to Microsoft was a surprise to many people. Personally, by the way, I thought that they should both have gotten it since I thought that there was a monocultural risk in having a single developer of the cloud. But let's leave that aside. The Microsoft bid was, uh, its victory was a, a surprise. And um, many, you know, from the outside thought that this was uh, possibly because of the president's well-known antipathy to Jeff Bezos, which is tied at least in part to Bezos's ownership of uh, the Washington Post. And now it, it sort of looks like they got some receipts. Uh, you know, the, the judge has enough evidence to say this is something I want to learn more about, all of which is going to set back the award of this contract by at least a year, if not more. And the end result will be, of course, no good new technology for the DOD proving again that we cannot buy IT for DOD in anything under, you know, a five year time frame with any success at all, which is a major problem. Uh, and, you know, at least inferentially, uh, if it turns out that the allegations about Trump's influence are true, opening up a whole can of worms about, you know, what the president said when he said it and 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 how Secretary Esper reacted to it, which would, you know, it won't be a scandal of 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 the same import or impeachment worthy as as the the things we just went through. But boy, it'll be a black eye for the contracting process. For sure, if that comes true. Yeah, I, I, you know, the 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 idea that uh, Joshua Schulte is going to uh, get to call uh, uh, Secretary Pompeo as a witness is a joke. Uh, that's, it's highly unlikely that he has something useful to say, but they want to call uh, President Trump. Uh, and their argument, I assume, is going to be, well, you know, he's perfectly capable of using, oh, I don't know, his uh, private lawyer to go have conversations outside the chain of command in order to get done what he wants to get done. And, you know, unlike other administrations, it's 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 not possible just to laugh that off. So uh, uh, this this really could turn into a Donnybrook uh, uh, and, of course, uh, Microsoft and DOD and their tech capabilities are all hostage to that. They probably should just start over instead of uh, fighting this one out. I, I think they have to. I mean, the real thing here is Bezos has enough money to, to, to take this for as long as it needs to go, right? Right. Uh, yeah, and presumably... He's actually a little angry at this point. Also, you have Trump's Twitter feed that so much of the Trump influence operation over his subordinates isn't even covert. It's just overt. And the biggest pushback you get from subordinates is, hey, please stop tweeting about my cover up. You're making it harder for me to do my cover up. <laughs> 
So I, you know, I would have more sympathy for Amazon if Jeff Bezos had not joined the rest of Silicon Valley in starting to suppress speech and then not tell us about it. It turns out from recent stories that Amazon has been disappearing books, including a book by you know the loathsome but nonetheless American and therefore he has the speech rights, David Duke, and. Uh, and uh, Amazon won't tell us what books they've banned. Uh, uh, they want it to to go away. I, I, that's that's not um, uh, the kind of behavior that uh, somebody who dominates book sales the way Amazon does should be engaged in. Uh, uh, I'm going to be going to a uh, conference tomorrow that the. Justice Department has put together on the future of Section 230, and a big chunk of it, I think, is going to be um, on the question of whether the uh, Silicon Valley media platforms, social media platforms, ought to have a Section 230 immunity when they suppress speech as opposed to when they fail to catch speech that they should have uh, uh, suppressed. Uh, um, and, I, you know, this... What Amazon is doing is fuel for the proposition that uh, we need to take away some of that immunity because it's being misused to uh, prevent Americans from uh, reading books or reading blog posts or seeing videos that they want to see, even if uh, Silicon Valley doesn't approve of it. Uh, so I'll, I'll be talking about that. I also will be surprised, Nick. I, I, I know you'll be enthusiastic about this. Uh, my view that uh, Section 230 shouldn't prevent tort liability for people who recklessly or, frankly, negligently uh, institute uh, warrant-proof encryption and thereby enable crimes whose victims are uh, if not identifiable, at least predictable, and who ought to be able to sue. And uh, suing the people who uh, enabled the criminals is uh, a fine American tradition. So uh, I, I don't expect that to be a, a very popular view, but that's uh, that's what I'll be saying. Uh, I don't want to completely repeat our delightful debate from the last time, but I should give you time to express your views on either of those issues. So the one thing is... The problem with running an internet service is every sociopath on the planet can potentially be a customer. You have to use a jackbooted fist of moderation to keep things in control. And then you get uh, dissed for having a jackbooted fist of moderation. Um, it's kind of a no-win situation. But your tort liability view actually isn't unique. Uh, I know Carrie Goldberg will be there, and she shares your agreement on a lot of this stuff. She was one of the lawyers behind the Tinder case that failed to get cert. All right. Well, it will be it will be interesting and fun. And you are right. Uh, uh, although if it's a no win proposition, uh, I don't know why these companies are worth uh, uh, trillions of dollars. Uh, uh, it sounds to me as though it may be a, 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 a point of pain, but it's a point of pain for which they are very well compensated. On the other hand, Stuart, using stock valuation and the like is kind of loony because like, do you really think Bitcoin is worth billions of dollars or 
Uber, which only succeeds in losing money. <laughs> okay, I, I'm, I'm not going to deny that. Uh, I, it's uh, unwise to uh, build your house on stock market valuations, especially in Silicon Valley. Uh, so we're coming up toward an election. Uh, DHS's uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has uh, announced a strategic plan uh, for protecting uh, the 2020 election. Uh, I spent time with it. I, I, I was pleased to see that their uh, uh, anti-pineapple on pizza campaign is still part of uh, uh, their explanatory materials uh, uh, about how uh, uh, attackers uh, uh, create division in American society. Uh, but I, I can't say I have a firm view about how good this strategic plan is? Nick, I'm hoping you, d- you do. Um, on one hand, it's the standard high-level strategic plan that doesn't tell you very much. On the other, there are a few things that look to be really important. First of all is offering a lot of services to the locals because the problem is, is our elections are run by 5,000 distinct local government institutions all of which are targets for nation-state adversaries, almost none of which are acting that way. That's a quote from Matt Blaze, by the way. Uh, The other thing that really stood out to me was a focus on the idea of resiliency as something that you really want to do. And I would like a concrete recommendation that they didn't do, but this is a good one. Can you handle 100% provisional ballots at your precinct? Because so many of the upcoming scenarios involve things that are designed to cause chaos, attacks on the registration system. And the way to handle that is not just to try to make your registration system hard to hack, but design your system so that you can recover from it. And so we have the provisional ballot mechanism specifically as a recovery from oopsie So let's make sure that the recovery from oopsie includes we don't have any registration data at all at the polls. Uh, or uh, we, we, we have the ability to, to give everybody a, a provisional ballot, which I'm not sure they can easily do. That's, that's a lot of printing. Uh, but a, a good point. Uh, and I, I did think, uh, you know, all their last mile stuff where they're trying to reach the people who are right on the front lines uh, uh, struck me as, as useful. Uh, uh, so, yeah, as strategic plan goes, it's, uh, it's got more planning and less stra- uh, uh, strategery than usual, and that's uh, to the good. Yeah, I think the real remarkable thing, Stuart, is that we actually have one, right? I mean, we didn't have one going into the 2016 election. We actually didn't really have one going into 2018. You know, I think it's, it's a really good sign that uh, the bureaucracy – Hate it, though you might, is at least moving forward, notwithstanding some doubts about this at higher levels of government. It's a it's a it's yeah, a positive. And, and look, strategic plans are uh, three quarters of them are not very uh, uh good uh, and they're written just because somebody told them to write a plan and they don't have decisions built in. But in this case, it looks as though uh, uh, Chris Krebs built in some decision making to decide, you know, what are our priorities and how are we going to carry them out? And he had the authority over CISA, at least, to say, okay, now that we've made the decision about those priorities, that's what we're going to do. And that's the real value of strategic planning. Okay. Okay. 
Ayanna went to uh, uh, do uh, uh, an elaborately, almost theatrical uh, um, uh, key signing uh, uh, ceremony and discovered to their shock that they had locked some of the keying material in a safe that they couldn't open. I, uh, th- there must be a hundred jokes here. But I, uh, Nick, uh, what's the best of them? Uh, the best one is it's a joke on how bad our computer security is because the safe can eventually be drilled open. And because the safes have standards, you know how long it's going to take the experts with angle grinders, crowbars, and explosives to get in. Yeah, that's how they, that's how they judge uh, safes. How long will it take somebody to get in? And a, a safe that takes 24 hours to get into is about the best safe you can buy. Yeah, this one took 20, Stuart, to drill out. Uh, I mean, I, I, I take a lot. I mean, first off, you know, it does tell us that cybersecurity lives in a physical world. And so the ultimate in securing the, the, uh, the keys to the, D, to the DNS system is not some cryptological methodology, but the physical removal of a piece of hardware and placing it in a safe or straight, actually two safes, if you, if you, if you know, and only one failed. So, so first off, even cybersecurity is physical. That's one thing. The other I, I got was kind of, you know, this actually heartened me a bit about the idea that there are ways of designing systems uh, for o- other key access, key escrow systems that are pretty robust, I- imperfect, right? You know, but uh, in the sense that there that there's no guarantee, but you know this is a pretty good system as far as I know. The DNS system's never been hacked uh, at the at the at the root level. So so you know that's a good lesson as well about possibilities for policy. Yeah, and and, and you know one of the lessons is sooner or later everybody's going to need a backdoor, uh, and uh, uh, having one here uh, in the form of a. 20-hour drill bit uh, has not resulted in any DNS compromises. Uh, let's go back to voting briefly because votes, which sort of looks like goats with a V and a Z, uh, um, is in the business of making apps that allow you to vote on your phone. I, you know, just those words send chills down my uh, uh, spine. Uh, um, and Nick, it sounds as though they should. Votes uh, security is, you know, is not very good, even if what they're doing were a good idea. Yeah, the best way to put it is votes is this week's winner of the Cyberlaw podcast, Michael Avenatti Memorial Anti-Sponsorship. It's just ridiculously bad. So first of all, they say blockchain for some reason, too, because, well, blockchain causes idiots to lose their mind. The software generates 100 random cryptographic keys and then just uses the 57th. Um, It has no real threat model. It's just utter crap. And yet the company's responses deny all that and... uh, go and threaten researchers. So basically, this is a company that deserves to burn in the fires of hell. And any state or local official who even considers buying their services for even a nanosecond deserves to be clubbed upside the head. I, 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 I Tell us what you really think, Nick. <laughs> um, 
I have this other problem with uh, uh, voting uh, on your phone or by computer. Uh, I, it's not about the security of the vote. It's about whether the vote is bought. Uh, if I can vote on my phone, I can sell my vote for 20 bucks and demonstrate that the bargain was a was worth doing to whoever paid me the 20 bucks by actually voting right in front of him. He can push the vote button if he wants and make sure that my vote goes to whoever he paid for. At 20 bucks, a lot of people are going to buy votes from uh, from folks who need the money. It is such a bad idea. And critically, a phone-based voting system, unlike, say, absentee ballots, you could do a automated infrastructure for the vote selling. That vote selling is always a problem, but we want fraud to cost O of N. To change N votes, it takes N times the effort. But with a vote selling scheme on a electronic device, you can make the effort so low per vote bought that you can basically make it cheap. So Nick, maybe what we should do is we should do an app uh, like Venmo that goes right on top of votes and allows you to buy it uh, uh, with Venmo right there and then push the button uh, uh, on demand. Uh, I bet that wouldn't be hard to, to develop. Except that you need to do it in cryptocurrency because if you're doing criminal activity, you always go with the bit. Of course, you're right. All right. Uh, uh, thanks to you guys. Uh, uh, this is a, a, a terrific uh, roundup. Uh, and let's now turn to our interview with Jonathan Ryberg. So our interview today is with Jonathan Ryber. He's a senior advisor at the Technology for Global Security and a visiting scholar at uh, UC Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. Uh, uh, he served in the Defense Department as the Chief Strategy Officer for Cyber Policy. Uh, that's a great title, Jonathan, because if something goes wrong, it's tactics, right? Uh, and if something goes right, it's because you had the right strategy. <laughs> Thanks, Stuart. I appreciate that. Okay. And he was the principal author of the Department of Defense Cyber Strategy in 2015. He's published recently a, a, a private report uh, uh, called Pri Public-Private War, How the U.S. Government and U.S. Technology Sector Can Build Trust and Prepare for Conflict in the Digital Age, which is a critical uh, uh, question. Um, so let me just start, Jonathan, with uh, – how you decided to write this report, why you thought it was important to, to get into this topic. Sure, Stuart. And thanks so much for having me on it. It's great to be on your show. Uh, and what, what started this topic? Really, it was a, an, a conversation over three hours with an executive at a major IT company outside his office in Silicon Valley in, in 2015. Now, back then, I was still in the Defense Department in the Obama administration and I was in the Valley with a bunch of three stars for a tour of major technology companies to sense technology and build our engagement. And it was really a transformative trip for me in a lot of ways. Um, now, his and my conversation revealed two principal things. The first thing was there was a lot that we could do defensively to improve U.S. cybersecurity posture that we hadn't done before. And this is someone that had worked closely with the government for a long time, but had decided to stop. And he'd done so after the Snowden revelations. And that revealed the second principal point, which I was already aware of, um, but was held in tension with the first, which was that there was this depth of mistrust between the national security community and the Valley 
that needed to be addressed in the post-Snowden environment. And it was really a wide gap that needed first to be understood, and second, it needed to be overcome. And the reason why I wanted to do that was to get to the first point, which was to develop a better relationship on on security problems. Now, this was a, this was this trip happened at the same time as the Defense Department was standing up the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. It's no longer experimental; they've dropped the X uh, under leadership of Deputy Secretary Bob Work and Secretary Ash Carter, who's my former boss. So that was the sort of that was the real conversational trigger. And this is a senior executive. And I said to him, I said, he was really antagonistic to the idea of, of again, cooperating with the government. And I said, well, what if we focused on just defensive operations? What if we could find a way to build understanding and work towards defensiveness? And by the end of the conversation, he was persuaded. And it really took a long time. Um, so, but the deeper backstory is really strategic. When I wrote the 2015 DoD cyber strategy, having written the classified 2010 version, the main reason I agreed to write the second one, and I'd been Ash Carter's speechwriter when he was deputy secretary, and this was the job I did after that. The real reason was there was work to be done, and that was principally because the Pentagon had been given the mission to defend the nation in 2012 under presidential policy. And this was a, a shift in the policy narrative, really under the leadership of Tom Donahue and the NSC and uh, Major General John Davis in the U.S. Army and Eric Rosenbach. Um, that helped assign to DOD the mission to defend the country in exigent circumstances where, where there was a significant cyber attack that was incoming. Prior to that policy shift, it was assumed that DOD would do it, but the president haven't really, hadn't really given DOD the mission. So now we had the mission, and there was a, the cyber mission force was going to be assigned against it. So it was this period of building out the force, the cyber mission force, to do the new mission. So we spent a lot of time in 2013 and 2015 strategically working on what that meant for deterrence, for capabilities, for teams. Um, Major General Paul Nakasone became the Cyber Mission Force commander at the end of that period. Uh, there was a lot of collaboration with the CIA, with DNI, FBI, and Cybercom. And at the end of all that work, when we launched the DoD Cyber Strategy, I reached out to some of the big companies to engage them and, and win their support in the strategy. And this was after Snowden. I met with these companies and I realized there was a way to develop advanced cooperation and, and also overcome the initial mistrust. And then the third point I'll say, Stuart, um, before turning back to you, is the mission to do the defend the nation mission is principally what's, what, um, what Frank Kendall once called a counter-offense operation. Actually, it was Craig Fields in the Defense Science Board who I first heard him call it a counter-offense operation, which I really like. And that's what the, the new DoD cyber strategy says. The job is to, do, to stop a threat before it hits its target. It's a hard mission to do that, um, but it is what, what DoD has been assigned. And the reason why it's hard is it's during a campaign. If an adversary is developing accesses and payloads to attack the country or to manipulate uh, social media or do whatever they're going to do through the Internet, through a cyberspace operation, it's very hard to anticipate and get in before they sort of push send. And that's not really, it's actually not really possible. So what are the ways for the private sector and the Defense Department to, to explore and to assess the threats and to develop, develop options and, and, and capabilities in advance? Now, I should be clear, I, I firmly believe that the government's job is national defense. Like the government needs to assume the burden of risk when it comes to national defense. And I don't think that the government should force the private sector to take any action in national security that would that would cause it to, to lose out on customers or markets in a way that makes it 
that, that, that comes with excessive costs. However, what if there are times where a company could take an action that's compl- that makes it very defensible within narratives of political legitimacy that can help undercut the chance of conflict and, and decrease conflict and lower levels of escalation? That's really, that was the purpose that I wrote this paper. How do we get there? And what are the processes and obstacles that we need to assess and overcome through that process of discovery? Yeah, so I I I I see that you're you're absolutely right. That is central to the problem. The the problem in in some respects is that most of the places you're going to be d- using defensive tactics are not under your control, and um, they're under the control of companies who don't even really want you in there, uh, and yet they need to coordinate with you uh, in order to have a unified defense uh, and finding a way in which they're comfortable. Doing that is difficult. Let me stop though and go backwards a little to ask a question that I've I'm always puzzled over. Uh, um, it is commonplace now to say that uh, uh, Cyber Command is defending forward. Uh, some of the things that you are saying sound like defending forward. Is it the same thing? And as a practical matter, what does that really mean? That's a great question, Stuart. So my understanding of of the Defend Forward doctrine means that U.S. Cyber Command is going to be taking actions against the adversary um, when required by law and when required by by national security and under law to blunt and block an adversary action before it comes in. And that could mean that the best example that we have historically at the moment is in 2018 when Cyber Command pushed the the Russian internet denied the Russian internet research agencies access um, to the internet and pushed them off the internet. And that, that is, that is a constitutional and um, it's, it's a, it's a mission that only the defense department can do under, under the law. And I would not ask companies to do that. I think the, the place where I want to, where I would like to see companies get to and where we began to get to, because I, I brought together six or six or seven folks and, 2016 to have this conversation between companies and and the government. And they opened up and said, these are the capabilities that we have. This is the infrastructure that we have. And where I would like them to get to is to say, if an adversary is using their platform for malicious purposes and they have, or if the adversary has malintent and the adversary is on their platform for other purposes, are there ways for them to deny the adversary access because of the actions that the adversary is taking? And a good example here, which I cite in the report, is um, in advance of the congressional elections in 2018, Microsoft and Facebook both pushed Russian actors off of their platforms um, who were doing disinformation. So at the same time as Cyber Command goes after the Internet Research Agency, these companies are taking their own actions. And I think that that provides an analogy for future contingencies that we could see coming down the line. Well, it makes sense. On the other hand, there's probably a whole lot that they knew about those activities and those actors that they could tell from their internal uh, 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 data uh, that would have been useful to the U.S. government in blunting the attacks from outside the network. Uh, um, And I'm willing to bet that that was a hard sell to some of these companies to share data or to do analytics on these uh, uh, attackers uh, um, inside their networks. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And and I I wasn't privy. I was outside of government at the time. So 
I speculate a little bit on, on and but part of the purpose of the paper is to go through the calculations both for companies and the government to say what are the risks associated with them with them giving the government a tip to say look we know what Russia's doing we have insight on the following three things um, we are going to do this under our own terms of service agreements against Russia. Um, but we want you to know the following five things about what they're doing. So I, I'm really interested in the calculations and the risk calculation for companies to go through to, to, to get them to a place where they're willing to cooperate. And really, it, there, that's where it gets to fundamentally, Stuart, the elements of trust, um, trust between people who, who have operational roles within the company and the government. Um, it also gets into questions of um, like sustained cooperation over time, like how, who are you keeping in touch with? Who are you talking to over time? Because um, trust is like, as, as someone says, it's like, it's it's hard to win, but easy to lose. It doesn't, you don't just have trust to begin with all of a sudden. Uh, and then it, you assume that it sticks around. You have to work together uh, consistently and see what the other guy's doing at his desk with the data you just gave him right? uh, to reassure you that, yep, he's doing what he said he would. And and, and that kind of interaction uh, works great uh, as long as it's occurring, uh, but it's unique to the folks in the room. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I and then the other other challenges that companies have that I was interested in exploring is the idea that what if it's disclosed that a company is doing this? Like, what what kind of risk does the company face from its shareholders, or for for customers, or for future markets? And in particular, that means, you know, I, I thought a lot about China in the report, as you saw. But um, companies have to say, like, what is our public affairs posture going to be if it is disclosed that we are helping on something like this? And it it really comes down to the nature of the adversary. So right now, for example, Russia, it's it's a pretty easy thing, I would imagine, for a company to say, you know, Russia's doing the following things. We're not going to to allow them to use our platform for the following reasons. It's an easy sell because of what Putin has done and his behavior. You could imagine scenarios in the future whereby uh, an actor who potentially has been less than hostile in the past... um, starts doing something that looks threatening and the government says, hey, can you help us? And the company says, yeah, but, you know, it, the company's in much greater risk uh, given, in, you know, future markets. And that prior to the, the, to the great de- decoupling really ramping up, I was focused on China uh, in that regard. So I, 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 the, the player you left out that I actually think is, is most significant in some of the uh, dramatic cooling is uh, – the engineer workforce, uh, the employee workforce, uh, um, I, I think especially in the Valley, maybe a little less so in Seattle, um, the, um, uh, the people who run the companies are afraid of their own workforce. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting point. I, I was actually thinking about the engineering workforce quite a bit um, throughout, throughout the drafting of this document. But I'm curious as to why you, why you say that, Stuart. Why do you think they're afraid of their workforce? Uh, because um, they are in a very competitive market for talent, and they simply cannot afford to be the one company that people make a face when you say you're working there. That that's that's death. Everybody will leave. Uh, everybody's mobile. Uh, this, maybe this is why it's more so in the valley than in Seattle, where there's only two big buyers of talent. Uh, in the Valley, there's hundreds. Uh, and people can leave. Uh, and once they start to leave, uh, your your future starts to decline. Uh, and so it's a 
desperate effort to make sure you don't become uncool. Uh, and that means that on, on any symbolic issues, you just surrender. If it doesn't cost you anything uh, to oppose the government on something, then you just do it uh, in order to avoid uh, uh, you know, having the mean girls of coding uh, come after you. You know, that's, that, Stuart, this really became the central and most interesting part of the study for me, by and far, 100%, because it's really, in my interactions with engineers, and I spent some time um, with engineers at a major tech company who I thought would be more inclined to consider threats, and they, to, there is a cultural narrative, there's a cultural distance between people who spend all their time thinking about threats and, strate- and strategic issues in Washington, D.C. or in national security communities globally, uh, in the United States overall, and people who don't spend all their time thinking about threats, who don't spend all their time thinking about violence. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have to spend all of your time thinking about violence in order to have a hard-headed view of national security, but I do think there is a di- there's a difference between people who've been exposed to the potential for violence or who, who grew up thinking about it and those who haven't. Uh, and those who live in American society sort of in a very safe, clustered or, you know, and within their own filter bubble um, to, to, to really not understand that war is a, is, a, is, a, is a potential thing that could happen. So I'm essentially asking people who, look, I, I respect everyone's decision. Like I, I think a company, it's, it's up to a company to decide what kinds of products it wants to develop and what it wants to do with the government. Like that is, that is my starting starting point. And that's, that's what it means to live in American society. But I would ask every company and engineer to say, listen, um, there are hostile actors out there in the world. And I want you to think about a day when we're entering into a potential conflict scenario that could be really ugly. And the most recent example we've had of that was with Iran. Um, when, when, when we struck Soleimani, there's a very good chance. Um, I don't, I, I still think that Iran might take action after that, after that incident, uh, particularly in cyberspace, but there's a very good chance that they'll do so outside of cyberspace um, in ways that you know w- could make us all very uncomfortable and scared. And I think that if war had if war had initiated, uh, God forbid, and I'm glad it, it, it hasn't, and we seem to have at least be in a moment of somewhat uh, decreased tension right now, um, then 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 they would have they would have used cyber capabilities to to come to the US. And actually I'm not certain that we're in a period of declining tension. It could tensions just could be at a stasis at the moment. Um, so I would actually ask specifically for companies to think about that from an Iran contingency. Or the second point would be what if Russia does something again? Now I, I will also say, Stuart, and I'm I'm going on here a little bit, but like after 2016, I noticed a significant change in the valley for how engineers and everyone thinks about threats. Like they, they looked at their technology and said, what have we built to have enabled this kind of manipulation? And it wasn't just manipulation. It was also in the social media companies, the sort of rise of white nationalism. They looked at themselves and said, what have we done to, to allow for these kinds of vulnerabilities in society? And we have a responsibility to prevent bad things from happening. So there is a shift in the culture separate from anything that the national security community would argue where people in technology are saying we have a civic responsibility. So I think that I think that's right. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, 
current events uh, shapes people's view about how necessary it is for the government to be taking action to protect uh, uh, the country and how much cooperation is appropriate and whether it's just the evil war machine or it's the people on the wall who uh, uh, have to uh, take actions we'd prefer not to think about in order to keep us safe. Um, so if given that we've got this constant shift in the public environment, uh, what are your kind of concrete recommendations? So we can't really fun we can't run the Defense Department or the American military the way we have for 50 years if um, all the scientists in Silicon Valley refuse to talk to uh, the Pentagon. Um, so uh, and, and we're not so far from that. So how do we get to a point where they are willing to say, boy, I, I really should be thinking about ways in which um, these tools could be used to prevent attacks on the United States, and I need to be working with the military to ensure that they're used properly? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. I, I think it's really a question of leadership. It comes down to leadership. And that um, that might sound like a tired trope, but for for people up and down the chain in the national security community to make an effort to to deepen cooperation, not just on, um, not just on sort of tactical small projects, which are which are good things to do in terms of building connective tissue, but really to have in depth conversations and, and exchanges of, of views about threats and and the nature of the world. Um, I think that there have been you know there there have. Cooperation between the Valley and the national security community has has um, waxed and waned over time. Um, and I think the degree to which the threat landscape changes will probably drive more companies to cooperate. Like if the threat landscape gets worse, I think we would see more companies cooperating with the Defense Department more because the population would, would begin to make its own judgments about, about the adversary and about the nature of threats overall. Um, so to a degree, there's this exogenous function of threat. But I think, you know, leadership exchanges, uh, conversations, exercises, I think people within the government, leaders within the government should probably put a number of skilled personnel on this task. And I'd mentioned in the report, the Enduring Security Framework, which is this terrific, um, terrific forum for, for exchange between the technology sector and the government. I think it, you know, that's a natural place for it. Um, well, and it was a, it was very successful. It had had good people running it. It had a really concrete problem that you describe in the report that uh, the Chinese were apparently aware of a serious flaw in BIOS software, which meant that uh, practically every computer was uh, at risk and it had to be fixed. It had to be fixed quickly and without a lot of fuss. Uh, and uh, the coordination that made that possible was at the heart of uh, probably the biggest achievement that uh, ESF has uh, has uh, accomplished. Yeah, it's it's true. And you know, I will say, um, I, I don't know what if the government ever made a public attribution about it. It was security, private security researchers attributed it to to the BIOS. And that was reported by CBS, um, I think it's 60 Minutes, so it's, it's a publicly, it's been publicly told. Um, and it's a very compelling example for how the national security community and the technology community shared a threat, shared a perception of the threat actor, for one, um, and then two, the, the nature of the vulnerability, and three, what could be done. It was a great example of 
sort of a not just a vulnerability disclosure, but but saying, listen, this is this is this is here, and and uh, hostile powers can can take actions using it. So the private sector made a choice to to patch, um, and that's that's actually like a, a compared compared to the kinds of cooperation that I'm talking about, it's a much lower risk. It's essentially a network defense operation, right? Like it's it's just a closing of vulnerability, um, and that. We, I think we've made tremendous progress in the last decade in, in the space of closing vulnerabilities when there's when there's when there's a hole discovered, whether it's bug bounties or or organizations doing it on their own. Um, so this is a more advanced kind of cooperation and a cultural change that that I think somebody like uh, General Paul Nakasone is very qualified to do, actually. Well, let's let uh, I uh, I'll I'll give you the last word on uh, what we should be doing, but it does seem to me we're in a moment where. That's an, not an unreasonable hope, although I have to say, and maybe I'll ask you this as the last question, that um, the other thing that has happened is ma- people are mad at Russia, but they're mad at Russia because they think Russia is to blame for Trump winning. Uh, and uh, their, 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 the disaffection for Putin is uh, sort of subordinate to their disaffection from the Trump administration. And I wonder whether that isn't going to make it even harder to have real cooperation uh, on some of these issues. Yeah, um, that's a that's a very good point. Actually, I, I think the American people for a long time sort of part of the reason they were so upset about the Russian intrusion was because of the surprise election of, of Donald Trump, which has a, which came for a whole number of other reasons. And we, I don't think we can pinpoint uh, his victory on any single single thing. I will note that a bunch of the things that happened in the last few months of the election did involve the internet. So there, there is, there are internet based problems and information security problems all over. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't think that, um, and I'll leave this to the companies themselves to make a decision, but I think the, the logic of the argument stands on its own, regardless of who's in power that companies should cooperate with the national security community to prevent another election meddling. And I think we've saw um, for the 2018 congressional elections, a, a significant uptick in cooperation. And that's very heartening that like that, that is one of the four stories that I highlight in the study. I look at the Snowden disclosures. I look at um, the, the defense contracts under Google uh, for project Maven and, and, and Microsoft sustaining its uh, virtual reality contract with the army. And then um, the BIOS, but the, the fourth story is this 20, 2018 cooperation in advance of the congressional election. And I think that that shows the community, the cybersecurity community and the national security community and technology community have in many ways matured their relationship as this issue has, has become much more significant. And I look, I chalk this up, Stuart, to a whole bunch of, of developments. The overarching trend is this, is the increased risk of digitization. I mean, we've also seen like Wired magazine subscription has grown tremendously in the last three years. Like even my mother reads it. Like people understand that the technology risks are there. So I don't, I wouldn't worry too much about, um, I worry about who's in charge for other reasons. But in this space, I see the community developing its expertise and moving forward. 
All right. Thank you. That's Jonathan Reiber. Uh, uh, thanks to Jonathan. Uh, uh, also to Paul Rosenzweig and Nick Weaver for the News Roundup. Uh, this has been Episode 300 uh, of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Uh, please do send comments uh, to us at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, leave us a, a review. I want to read the latest one uh, from Lakanal2, who says... Uh, I much enjoy the Cyber Law Podcast, even if, as a non-American, some of it goes over my head. Uh, I was moved to write this review by the superb discussion of EU privacy law, in which the king's absence of clothing was pointed out with refreshing forcefulness. Uh, in Europe, we seem generally to take for granted the law on data processing, which flies in the face of reality and is in any event fundamentally misconceived. Uh, oh, God bless you, Lacanal, too. Uh, in a free society, what I disclose to you is not my data, but yours. Keep up the good work. So uh, a, um, a review I, I will treasure. Uh, uh, thanks again, Jonathan. Uh, Thank and, you, Stuart. Uh, and, and to the audience, uh, please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.